Clay is out of town. I do want to say um, hello to Clay and to all of you who are streaming with us. Clay uh, said that he would be watching. He's on a much-deserved uh, vacation right now with his family. I realize right now it's kind of nice. I can talk to Clay, but he can't talk to me. Those of you visiting, that's our senior pastor. And rarely can you talk to Clay without Clay talking back to you. So I feel a sense of power. I don't know. It's really lovely right now. I don't want to get used to it. I'll come back to reality soon. Um, so I want to start out this morning with sort of a thought experiment, okay, and, and a question. And what I need from you is I need for you to be honest and authentic. I need you to be your real self. So basically, I'm going to need to ask you to pretend you're not at church. Because, uh, I don't know, sometimes when we come to church, we... We become something different from ourselves. I don't know if that happens to you. Uh, but uh, maybe on the way to church, you're in a spat with your spouse. You're yelling at the kids in the back seat. Yet suddenly, magically, when you hit the door to the church, you become some magical mix between Mother Teresa, Desmond Tutu, and the Dalai Lama. You know? And the reason I know that happens is because uh, maybe sometimes I do that myself with my own family on the way here. I feel bad for those of you coming in from Franklin. You have to argue for 30 minutes before you get to church and be a horrible person. I just have five to seven minutes of being a horrible person with my family. But sometimes when we come to church, we pretend to be our best selves. But I want, to, I want you to answer this question honestly. And here's the deal. I'm going to know if you're lying. Your neighbor's going to know if you're lying. And I'm going to do this thing I learned growing up as an evangelical. God will know if you're lying. All right? And honestly, we'll all know if you're lying if you say no to the following question, all right? Here's the question. Do you enjoy judging other people? Anybody? Anybody even going to say no? Is anyone going to do it? No, because it's fun to judge other people. I like judging other people. I try not to judge other people. I don't try that hard not to judge other people. But I judge all kind of people. I judge people who drive Priuses. <laughs> Seriously. I don't judge them because they love the earth. I love the earth. I've lived here my whole life. And I plan on living here until I die. I don't judge them because their car gets 423,000 miles to the gallon. I judge people who drive Priuses... And some of y'all are here, I know, and I love you. I just people who drive Priuses because I know they're judging me. <laughs> Shortly after our child was born, I went out and bought an SUV. All right, because I've seen the way you people drive around Nashville. <laughs> and I bought an SUV that is like, you know, it's not the biggest, it's not the most ostentatious one, but it's pretty big. I wanted my family safe, so we bought an SUV. So I know when I'm barreling down the road and I drive by the, you and your Prius, I know you're judging me, so I'm just going to go ahead and judge you first and be done with it. <laughs> you know who else I used to judge? I used to judge parents of feral children. <laughs> you know? You go out and you want a nice night out at a, at a, at a, at a swanky restaurant, you know, something very elegant, like a Japanese hibachi place. I'm from South Carolina. Where I'm from, that's where you go on the prom. Kampai Tokyo is where it's at. Oh, there we go. That's right. Their ginger dressing is out of this world, really. But you're sitting at whatever restaurant it is, and you see that family over there whose children are flinging 
the wrapping of straws with chopsticks and they're driving you crazy and you look at the parents and you think, why did you procreate? Because you procreated, I'm not enjoying my meal tonight. If you notice, I said I used to judge the parents of feral children. I don't anymore because now I am the parent of feral children. And I'm the one whose family ruins your dining experience. Or will soon once the kids are vaccinated. I look forward to ruining your dinner soon again. You know who else I judge? I pretty much judge, I judge pretty much anyone who ever disagrees with me about anything. Which turns out to be a lot of people. I mean, surely the world would be a better place if you all just listened to my opinions about how to be. Surely the insights of a middle-aged pseudo-intellectual who writes poems at coffee shops, surely that's the guy with all the answers, you know? Whether we want to admit it or not, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it feels good to judge other people and we can all be a little judgmental. We can all enjoy that feeling of moral and or intellectual superiority that it gives us to judge other people. But what are we doing when we judge others? What's going on in our hearts? Well, you know, today's story from the Gospel of John deals with a lot of dynamics. There's a power play going on between the religious leaders of his day and Jesus. And the scene also, I think, centers on the tensions between condemnation and grace between judgment and mercy. You know, this is an interesting passage of Scripture for a lot of reasons. This passage of Scripture is not even in most of the earliest manuscripts we have of the Bible. It's just not there. And in that next sort of generation of biblical manuscripts, when it does appear, it doesn't always appear here. Sometimes it appears a little earlier in John. Sometimes it appears near the end of John. Sometimes it appears in Luke so it's a funny little passage that we don't exactly know what to do with. So some people would say, well, if it's not in the earliest manuscripts, why should we even spend our time talking about it? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. The first of which is it is a passage that's part of our popular imagination. How many times have we heard when some scandal happens, someone say, well, let the ones without sin throw the first stone. You know, it's a passage that's part of our cultural memory. But also, I think it's interesting for us to consider what is it about this passage that made those early Christians keep putting it in the manuscript one way or the other. Let's put it in Luke. Let's put it in John. There's something about its tenacity that draws me to it. I wonder what they saw in this passage that said the story of Jesus needs this part of the story to be told. Well, let's consider it this morning and see what's going on. So in the previous chapter, Jesus has been arguing with the, or the, the temple leadership's been arguing with Jesus. And they've been trying to figure out a way to arrest him because he's causing trouble. He's shaking things up a little bit. It's a bit of a rabble rouser. So there's been all of this discussion going on earlier in John 7 about how they're going to arrest Jesus. And Jesus has been teaching in Jerusalem. And we're told that Jesus leaves Jerusalem that night before and he goes to the Mount of Olives to rest. The Mount of Olives ends up being a significant place in the life and, and ministry of Jesus because the Garden of Gethsemane is at the base of the Mount of Olives. So this is all terrain that becomes very important in Jesus' story. So after a night of resting, Jesus comes back into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple and he's teaching to the crowds that surround him, the crowds that go with him wherever he goes because he's such a dynamic figure. And then suddenly, a mob of religious men come to him with a woman, with an unnamed woman. 
The text tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees bring to Jesus a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. So who are the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, the scribes were kind of like first century Jewish lawyers. So we see that lawyers have been a, a thorn in the side of good people for millennia. There's nothing new culturally. Um, but the scribes were more than just contract lawyers, which they were that. They were also uh, the sort of uh, the theologians who kept the, the scribes, who rewrote the scrolls so they would have more, more uh, copies of the Torah and the writings um, and, the, uh, and the prophetic books from the, from the, the Hebrew scriptures. And the, so they were also very important in, in the people's attempts to understand the law and how the law applied to their lives. And the Pharisees were another powerful group along with the Sadducees in ancient Judaism. And in many ways, Jesus actually had more in common theologically with the Pharisees. But right now he's in this power struggle. And the Pharisees and the scribes, who are all going to be men, by the way, have brought him an unnamed woman. And I think we need to sit with that for a moment to recognize this instance of religious violence against the body of a woman. There's a gendered aspect to this passage that we have to, we have to lift up as we talk about it. See, the law of Moses does prescribe in points that if a couple, if a man and a woman, it says in the, Old, in the Old Testament books, in the Torah books, if a man and a woman are caught in adultery, they can be killed by stoning. But it also says that no, no capital punishment can take place without the witness of two or three. And so we see already that the scribes and the Pharisees aren't being totally genuine with Jesus because they're not truly following their own law already, even as they set this trap for Jesus. So we ask ourselves, you know, the last time I checked, adultery requires at least two participants. And if the law says the man and the woman are to be brought, why is the man not there? And so we already see how often in the history of religion, religion has been born in bad ways on women and on women's bodies. And I feel like we need to attest to that and, and, and spend an uncomfortable moment with it in this text. I wish we could say the history of Christianity showed that we changed our ways, and yet history will not allow us such an act of amnesia. As we think of this moment, how lonely must this woman have felt? She's been found in a compromising situation. And suddenly the religious leaders of her day are not only threatening her life, but they've made her a pawn in a religious game between powerful men. They push her in front of Jesus and say, the law says to stone her. What do you say? They're trying to get Jesus to, to go against the law of Moses so they can arrest him. They've set a trap for him. And what do we read that Jesus does? The scripture tells us that he bends down and he writes with his finger in the dirt. And I love that because I try to write, you know, I like to sit at the coffee shop and write poems so I can figure out the future of humanity, right? This isn't a coffee shop and Jesus isn't writing poems, you know? What Jesus is actually doing, this is kind of fascinating, and the scribes and the Pharisees would have known it. He's refusing to engage with them on the terms that they've set. This is sort of like the ancient, ancient equivalent of hitting mute on social media. Jesus is muting the scribes and the Pharisees. He's saying, I don't have to engage with you on the terms that you've tried to set for me. And they know that's what he's doing. And that's why the scripture says they keep on badgering him with questions. They keep on trying to elicit a response because they're trying to draw him into this trap. And the scripture says that Jesus sets up from his writing. 
And this is what he says. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Jesus sits up for that moment. He lets his words hang in the air, and then he writes on the ground again. Now, some ancient manuscripts, probably, probably not the most reliable, but I love this note. They have a note in there, sort of a scribe inserted. They wanted to, because people want to think, well, what's Jesus writing, you know? Uh, and, and so some of these ancient manuscripts say that Jesus was writing, quote, the sins of each of them. So imagine this. A group of powerful religious men have gathered to shame and execute a woman for adultery. And Jesus confronts them with their own sins. What might he have written in the dirt if that were true? Greed? Lust? Envy? Sloth? Gluttony? Wrath? Or that most damaging one for the mob, and likely for some of us here, including myself, pride? Even if we don't know what he was writing, his assertion alone hangs in the air. Let anyone among you who is without sin throw the first stone at her. He takes the law that they are using for judgment and transforms it into an invitation for self-reflection and a moment of conviction. How do they respond? The scripture tells us that they walk away one by one. The elders first, the most respected among them first. And think about that woman standing there, and this mob that was about to kill her. And listen to the sound of their stones hitting the dust one by one as they walk away. So that in the end, Jesus is left face to face with this unnamed woman. So while the woman was only a pawn to the self-righteous religious leaders, Jesus engages with her for the first time in the passage. She is spoken with and not simply about. Jesus refuses to allow her to simply be an object, but rather engages her as a subject, as a human, as a person. And Jesus stands face to face with the woman who before this moment must have known her life was about to end. And he asks her a question. Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she responds. To which Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. This scene begins in violence with the religious mob ready to execute this unnamed woman. She is simply used by them as they try to trap Jesus and find a way to arrest him. Her life itself caught within a power struggle amongst these male religious leaders of her day. This scene begins with judgment and violence, yet it ends with grace and mercy and the promise of life. As we see the actions of the religious mob, as we hear Jesus' conversation with the unnamed woman, what insights can we glean from this story? What insights can we take away I think the first one is this, that Jesus calls us to put down our stones, especially when we're certain we're in the right. The, th the way of Jesus is nonviolent. The way of Jesus is free from coercions and threats. Many religious traditions try to enforce morality 
under the threat of punishment, but the way of Jesus is the way of love. And there's no room for violence and coercion in the way of Jesus. And while I playfully suggested at the beginning of the sermon that judging was fun, because it sort of is, the truth is it's a soul-destroying game. It's soul-destroying for the one who's being persecuted. And it's even soul-destroying for the religious mob themselves because their self-righteousness blinds them to their own need for mercy. When we judge others, we do violence to them and we do violence to our own selves. How can we ever be truly who we are if our religious self-righteousness blinds us to our own need for mercy? Jesus calls us to put down our stones. And I believe Jesus also calls us to confront our own brokenness so that we can live with humility. Our judgment grows from a lack of empathy with other people. It's like me and my former judgmental attitude towards people with feral children. I've now walked a mile in their shoes, so to speak, or sat through dinners in their seats. So maybe that's the better metaphor. I don't judge them anymore. I feel their pain. In his essay collection, No Man is an Island, Thomas Merton has two separate quotations that to me offer some insights into this passage of Scripture. The first is simply this. Pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. Pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. And the second quote is longer, but... Bear with me as I read it because I think it's worth us considering. Merton says, only the person who has had to face despair can really be convinced that he needs mercy. Those who do not want mercy never seek it. It is better to find God on the threshold of despair than to risk our lives in a complacency that has never felt the need of forgiveness. He goes on, a life that is without problems may literally be more hopeless than one that is always on the verge of despair. With this insight from Merton, as we consider this passage, I think we can see that the unnamed woman who sinned, who's been shamed, who's nearly lost her life, she's miles closer to God than the self-righteous religious mob. She knows she needs mercy. She knows she needs grace. And yet they, the religious people, are blind to their need because they're so assured in their own rightness and righteousness. Jesus calls us to put down our stones, calls us to confront our brokenness so that we can live with humility. And finally, I think Jesus in this passage reminds us that none of us, none of us are beyond the reach of God's mercy. When Jesus tells the woman in front of him to go and sin no more, he doesn't belittle the pain that adultery has caused and brought in her life. He doesn't say there won't be consequences, but he certainly doesn't heap on shame and guilt. He lets the woman know that while the religious leaders desired her condemnation and death, he desires her repentance and her wholeness. 
She's not beyond the reach of God's mercy. And when Jesus tells the mob who were ready to stone the woman, let, the one, let one among you who is without sin cast the first stone at her, he invites them also to consider the state of their own souls, their frailty, their failings, their hidden sins. Somehow, Jesus manages to honor and call attention to the humanity of both the religious mob and the unnamed woman. And he invites them both to change their lives by recognizing themselves as souls in need of mercy. As we spent this time together this morning, what's come home to you about this passage of Scripture? Have you ever felt judged? And I don't mean simply for driving a Prius or having feral children. Do you know the sting of being judged by others? Maybe it's been by the church itself. Jesus' message to you is one of welcome and healing to know that you are loved as you are and that God desires your wholeness. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've always done the right things and you've always said the right things and you've always been sure of your righteousness. Well, man, that sounds like a heavy load to carry to always be right and righteous and holy. Being right all the time must be heavy. Maybe to you this morning, Jesus is staying like a stone. Put down that load of self-righteousness and know that you too are loved as you are in all of your brokenness. I worry sometimes that the church might feel more like the religious mob than the loving mercy that Jesus offers. Certainly when we're at our best, though, we come here each week and we try to make space for one another at the table that is church. We come here with our addictions and our failures, with our loneliness and our need. We come here with wavering faith. We long to be seen and loved as we are. We come here to learn again that God meets us with grace and mercy. And sometimes we believe it too. And we walk away changed. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the chance to gather as your children. And we thank you for this story in Scripture where we see the love and the mercy that Jesus has for this unnamed woman. And miraculously, too, we see the mercy that he has for the religious mob. Lord, for those of us who are more like them, help us to put down our self-righteousness, to confront our brokenness and seek your mercy. And Lord, may each of us who comes in these doors know that we are never beyond the reach of your mercy and your love. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God forevermore. Amen.